Hey guys, this week on the Grad Life Podcast, we are very lucky. We've got Taylor Brown, who's the founder, our co-founder and COO of Fivetran. It's the company I actually work for. Taylor, thank you very much for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me. So Taylor's got a couple of interesting things going on. Not only is he the <laughs> uh, the, the co-founder of a, a pretty successful startup so far, uh, with Series B from Andreessen Horowitz, who are a pretty famous uh, VC firm, but he also studied art and then went into uh, a pretty successful business career. So we're going to kind of focus on that as that is something that a lot of people uh, are in a, a bit of a quandary with is, is having one passion and kind of wanting to make a bit of money or do well in business on the other side and not knowing how to, to merge the two. So we'll pick Taylor up maybe at the end of high school uh, over in, De- in Boulder, Colorado. What yeah. were you thinking as you were leaving high school? What was your plan? Let's see. So... Growing up, much of life, uh, I really wanted to be an architect of all things. And so a lot of my passion uh, early on was towards architecture, architecture, architecture. In high school, um, a lot of my professors tried to push me more towards uh, the sciences. So I took a lot of science classes and, and, and it maybe there were people pushing me towards being a doctor. And I just realized I didn't really, two things. One, I couldn't remember all of the names of all the bones and <laughs> that kind of thing. Uh, and two, it just it wasn't like a passion of mine. And so after uh, high school, so in high school, at the end of high school, I applied to all these different colleges. And in the U.S., uh, I think, you know, a lot of students are pretty directionless when they come out of high school. At least I definitely was, even though I kind of knew I wanted to do architecture a lot of the, again, teachers had pushed us towards other things like do science, do this, do that. So that confusing message then becomes, uh, you know, the the essence of, or you in essence are like, I don't know what I should be doing, so I'm just going to try and go to the best school that I can. And right. So it becomes about school logo or school totally. brand. Right. Okay. So then I just applied to all these schools that I thought were kind of good schools. And I, I had a um, counselor and the counselor kind of pushed me towards medium-sized schools, meaning like schools of, you know, not, you know, not 2,000 students, but not 30,000 students. So somewhere between like between five and 15,000 students in locations that were warmer, that had, you know, a wider, a wider array of different things to, to study. And so I was, you know, my, my decisions of where I applied was largely essentially dependent on what my counselor thought I should be doing. And so I applied to all these schools, you know, like University of San Diego. I was like, oh, it's a beautiful school. You know, there's like, you know, you're right on the beach. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. You know, stuff like that. So, you, you know, I applied to all these schools. And uh, at the same time, I was playing American football. And so I, for high school, and I was uh, an all-state player at that point, and I, started, and I got recruited by a bunch of different places. So I applied to a bunch of different uh, colleges, mostly just for academics, but some for also for for uh, playing football. And uh, so I got accepted to a bunch of different schools, including University of San Diego and, and a number of other ones. And But I also applied to, or I was recruited to uh, Harvard and Yale and uh, Cornell. And so for, for football, so I applied to those schools and I didn't get into any of them, but the Yale coach basically said, hey, I think you're really smart. You don't quite have the grades to get in. But if, you know, would you be willing to go to a prep school for an extra year, like another year of senior year of high school and, you know, play sports for them and, and then, you know, apply again next year. Interesting. And so for me at first, you know, first was like, this is crazy. Like, why would I go back to high school? 
But it, it, it gave me the opportunity to say, look, I'm gonna take another year to actually focus on what it is that I want to be doing. And the school that I was uh, offered to go to is a, comp- a school called Choate, Rosemary Hall. And it's like one of the best prep schools in the in the country. And so like John F. Kennedy went there, the Trump daughters went there, the right. Prince of Nigeria went there. Like, you know, just a lot of like heavy hitters. Um, and the, you know, the, it was like, the education there was probably better than most colleges. So for me, it was a great opportunity to go live back in the East Coast where I felt the academic atmosphere was better than the West Coast, where the West Coast had great institutions, but there's a lot of distractions. Whereas in the East Coast, there's kind of this work hard, play hard uh, mentality, and also the weather is just terrible. So like it just, you know, that itself forces you into doing more work. Um, So I got accepted to, uh, to, to go to Choate. I went to Choate. Choate was a, a very uh, different experience. So you go from a public high school where you, you, know, you don't have very, very many rules to a private high school where you have, you know, you're boarding and you have a lot of rules, you know, probably similar to what your school yeah. had. And, you know, you have to be in by 930 and, you know, no girls in guys' rooms and like, you know, just all of these these rules that uh, were kind of stringent. And then on top of that, the, sc- the actual classes were like way, way harder than the classes I had at my other at my other high school. And you're playing football on top of all this. So I'm playing football and uh, and yeah, and like, the you know, the classes are one teacher to five students. Round nice. table. God, that's nuts. And sometimes you just go to their house because a lot of the, the professors lived on campus. Yeah. And so, I mean, it was amazing. I mean, I think that was where I really learned a lot about um, uh, communication. So re- reading, writing, verbal communication. Whereas that was not a core focus of mine in high school. In high school, I really kind of scooted by. I just got good grades by working hard and just like sucking up to teachers and sitting in the front row. Right? Right. Like he was like, you know, easy. And then this is like so hard. So I worked my, you know, worked my butt off. And I have to say, I wasn't super. Uh, the first, you know, part of that, I wasn't really that happy with the choice. Like at first, it was like. You know, it was weird because I went and even saw the school and I said, like, I really don't like this. I don't like the school. I don't like this idea, but something feels like really right about this. So I just said, I'm going to take a leap of faith and I'm going to go do this. It's yeah. like, you know, this super senior year. But and I, like, so when, when you were leaving Joe, what were you thinking about uh, about what to do? Did they drill you into being a banker or anything like that? Or? Well, so it's interesting. So when I, when I got there, I was like, cool, what what is it that I really want to do? And I'd always said, like, I really want to do architecture. So I, I, t- I was even taking some some art classes in design, and there was an architecture class there. And so the first ha- the first you know semester, they actually have trimester. The first trimester, I really was not happy because it was I was working so hard, and I was playing sports, and I had like a girlfriend that you know was had gone to college, and she was having lots of fun. And all right. my friends were were at college, and they were all sending me text messages, like partying really late, and it was like, you know, I've got a 9:30 curfew, and so you know, it, it was just kind of wild, and um, and I was I was not in a great place, and it was in fact I was such a not a great place that I decided they had a study abroad program. Uh, that was the third uh, trimester that was in Paris. And so I applied to that as a postgraduate, which they never had that done before. Most most of the time it was like sophomores and juniors that were going. And they accepted for me to go on, you know, to Paris. So I was really excited about that. And so that was kind of something that like life in a tunnel at least, like at least I get to go live in Paris for, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. three or four months. That's much. Um, so there's that, and then and, and so then I applied to all these schools. They were all architecture schools. I applied to University of Cincinnati, which they have an amazing uh, their DAP program, Design, Art, Architecture, and Planning. 
Uh, I applied to Cornell and and could have gone and played football at Cornell, and they have you know at that point had the best architecture program in the country. Uh, I applied to a bunch of other architecture programs, and uh, and then I also got recruited by Amherst, and so Amherst was is like a small liberal arts school. They don't have an architecture program, um, but they're very well renowned in their liberal arts, and so. For me, I was like, you know, I'll just keep them, you know, keep them warm, so to speak, and I'll just, you know, I'll entertain it. But really, you know, I want to do these architecture things. So I went and did all these visits. I went to all these different architecture schools to check them out, see if I liked them. Um, and when it came down in the second, so then, you know, we get to the second uh, semester or trimester, football's done. I'm, you know, really looking at all these schools, and you know, I'm starting to go to New York. And I'm starting to like, you know understand a little bit more about what is it like to be an architect that was the big question i was asking myself okay yeah. well, like, imagine i go to cornell imagine i become a, you know an architect what am i going to be doing for the rest of my life and that was really where the for me the rubber hit the road because i kind of realized that something like 0.2 percent of all architects get to actually build a building that they've designed and so yeah. what what the future looked like for me was you know probably the first 10 years of your architecture career are just designing stairwells and you know whatever bathrooms and things like that and like only a small percentage of those stairwells actually get built right and okay. so they just like that to me was was not great i also didn't love the hierarchy of that so there's kind of this belief like you have to work your way up to the you top no matter dues, what yeah. you got to pay your dues in fact they have a seven-year apprenticeship program where oh, you geez. literally have to sit under somebody else for seven years and just design their stairwells and so to me, that just sounded like terrible, right? And so then when I went in reflecting, I kind of thought back and said, you know what, even though this experience at Chode has been super hard, it's also gotten me, you know, really motivated to learning about all these other things, reading these amazing books, writing, like doing all the stuff that I really hadn't focused on. And so what I realized is that I actually didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I didn't want to design stairwells. So I said, okay, I'm going to give myself the most optionality here and it turns out like, you know, Amherst is like the best liberal arts school in the country. So Amherst is at that point only, uh, it still is about 1600 students total. Right. So it's about 400 in each class. And my, uh, and show was super small as well. And so I was like, I just want to continue this experience that I had at show in college. Um, and so then I accepted to go to Amherst against all odds. Again, I went and visited Amherst even early and was like, ah, I don't really like this place. It's too small, whatever. But you just take this like leap of faith and you bring, you just kind of bring the right uh, energy towards it and it ends up working out. It's funny that you say at the start you didn't like chilled at all and then you, yeah. by the end of it you look to extend that experience. Yeah. So you, you go into Amherst and what was it art you were studying there? So I, I, I just naturally gravitated. To, so the interesting thing about Amherst is Amherst, unlike a lot of institutions, does not have a policy where you go in and they say, here's your classes. They just say... Go. There's one required class. It's your like your freshman class, and right. then even that is something unique. So I took a freshman class. It was called Eros and Insight. It was all about like science and art combining. Right. And it was like probably the best class I took at all of Amherst. So you weren't looking like a business person at all at this stage. No, not at all. I when mean, did the business and what, why and when did the business kick in? So I'll, I I'll guess I'll get to that in a second. So I get to Amherst and, and Amherst is just like take whatever classes you want. And so I took this Eros and Insight class. I took a bunch of drawing classes. I took um, some psychology and sociology classes. I took some econ classes and I realized like uh, econ really wasn't my thing. I, I, you know, it was just kind of boring to me. I mean, now I'm actually a little more interested in it, but I just kind of took classes at like all over the place. Um, and when you fast forward to my 
sophomore, junior year, as part of that, I, I was really at that point starting to get into design. I mean, so I've kind of keeps gravitating back to this like yeah. design. So like, I was like, okay, maybe it was an architecture, maybe it was industrial design. So think like, you know, phone design or like vacuum design or like whatever, right? So I kind of was gravitating towards that. And actually my junior year, I, uh, strangely, I applied to transfer to Rhode Island School of Design, which has like a really good design program. And I went there for their summer transfer program and I spent the whole summer there. And it was like, it's so, it was like a very different experience, um, similar to Amherst, but like only focused on art. Yeah, I've heard design. of it. It's actually, it's very prestigious and very famous. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, so yeah. I like got into their transfer program. I went there, I'm like going through the, the program and uh, or the summer program and I went and talked to their the head of their graduate school for industrial design and they said basically you're an idiot stay at Amherst you're going to learn way more about communication and uh, problem solving and just like general interest in the world and then after you finish in college like you know at Amherst then take you know the drafting classes and the uh, like technical like you know skill type classes that you need at like a state school for super cheap and then come back to graduate school here right. and so it's funny to have the school that I was transferring to tell me like no don't transfer here like stay where you are you're at the best school like go continue yeah, to yeah. do that and so that actually I like pulled the ripcord and went back to uh, went back to Amherst and so I finished my junior year. And at that point, I'd, be, I'd been taking all these art classes because I just really liked them. So I knew for sure I was going to major in art. And then I also was taking all these um, like philosophy, anthropology, and, and sociology classes. And so then I ended up like my going into my senior year, I said, like, uh, the one thing I've really enjoyed doing is a lot of sculpture. So I did a thesis in sculpture, in kinetic sculpture, like large metal things that moved and people like interacted with them. So I was right. really into like human interaction with like physical things. Right. Um, and that's probably like somewhat tailored by the fact that I was interested in industrial design and, and like product design. And so, uh, so from there, you know, I, it was just the natural path. Like, oh yeah, you, you just do a thesis in sculpture and they gave me this amazing studio and I had access to all the welding materials and it was like amazing because there's so there's think there was like five other students that were doing a thesis in, in art and four of those were photographers. I was the only one that was doing one that was basically you know hands-on applied arts. Um, so they just gave me all the resources. They're like, here you go, like take whatever you need basically. Yeah. And they gave me a huge grant, and so I had all this money to spend towards making sculpture. And it was like it was an amazing experience. And then I looked and I had so many classes. I'd taken so many of the senior classes in anthropology that they're like, look, you only have to take like one or two of the junior classes to uh, to just major in this as well. Right. So I majored in anthropology, which is a great, I think, combination of like human studies. And so, cause I thought these were the two best things for actually going into industrial design. So it's like understand humans and how they think and how you study them and also- Sculpture. You know, sculpture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so anyways, that, that was kind of how, that's what got me through to the end. And at the very end of college, basically, um, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I had three, I kind of conjured up three options. Option one was that what all my teachers were pushing me towards is go to New York and just become a, a sculptor. Like right. go to New York. That's the thing to do. Like just have to do that. Right. So that was option one. Option two, I'd applied to go teach English in Japan for a year. Cause I really liked one of the art history classes I took was Japanese art history. And I thought that the Japanese aesthetic was just absolutely yeah, divine. Cool. I appreciate and so I really wanted to go and just live there. Um, and then option three was 
moved back to Boulder for the summer because my mom was actually gonna be traveling so I could just live in her house and kind of figure out what was next, take some of these industrial design classes at the state school there, and then eventually moved to San Francisco. Um, for Korean industrial design. That's or, right. Right, okay. And so, because I was kind of like, I'd go work at like a frog or an IDEO. Right. That was the, that was the like rough cut direction yeah. I was, I was try- aiming for. Um, and so after further thinking about it, I decided that s- the sculpture direction was like a little bit too, it, it just didn't afford me the life that I was interested in. Like, I didn't want to be a, star- a starving artist. Can we, can we get your age at this point? 23, 24 maybe? I was 23. 23, okay. Yeah. And so I, yeah, I didn't want to be an art, a starving artist. I was like, that was kind of out. The Japanese um, program, after talking to folks that had done it, was they were like, it was great, but it was very isolating because I would I would have been basically going from high school to high school every day talking to a different set of high school students about being about like America and American like ways of yeah. living. And this is the problem with that is that you just never make any friends. You're just like on the road giving the same speech right. over and over again for 365 days. Jeez. And so they're like, you could see a lot of the country, but you're also just like living out of a suitcase yeah. and you don't really make any friends. Um, and so, you know, from there, uh, I decided the best path forward was to go back to Boulder, live there for the summer and, you know, take design classes and kind of go from there. So that's what I did. Yeah. Okay. So you're in Boulder, and then so you, you there you end up going to San Fran anyway to work in that startup, right? Yeah. So then from there, I, you know, <laughs> I lived in Boulder for the summer. I applied to, I got into a bunch of industrial design classes, taking furniture design classes. So I got really into furniture. I was building all this furniture, uh, which you still do in your spare time. Yeah, which I, I'm still doing on the side. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I know, so. yeah, mostly. I mean, I'm selling it. It's just like for my mom or my house or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so. I'm doing that and I'm, I'm taking all the, you know, design classes thinking, you know, maybe I'll just apply and go back to RISD as I had been thinking about. And so I was doing all of this and I just was kind of feeling like even that was too limiting. Like I got the same spider feeling that I had about architecture, which was you kind of get, you get stuck in this path and like, you know, as fun as it is to design vacuums, like I just didn't want to be designing vacuums for like the next 10 years. Yeah. Um, and so I was also the side, I started making websites, just like learning kind of on the side, how to do websites and web design. So I was doing some of that and, um, part of through the year, a good friend of mine from Amherst who I had, uh, who's my roommate, uh, named Chris Motto, Chris, had joined uh, some you know some guys in San Francisco in a consultancy, and they'd spun off and you know built this company called North Social that was building applications for Facebook. He essentially called me and said, "Hey, we need someone to come help us. Like this thing's launching. We need someone." And I said, "Well, what like what do you mean you need someone?" He's like, "Well, you know, just grab an oar. Like, like what do you mean? He's like, just start rowing. Like just get, just get here, and we'll figure it out, right?" And so I said, "Well, should I send a resume?" And he's like, "No, no, no, no. no. Just just get on a plane." <laughs> So, so like funny. I I bought a one way ticket for seventy dollars and this was kind of at the end of the year and I was really like I was getting a little bit of cabin fever for Colorado at that point Colorado there just wasn't that many opportunities right. there and I had been working um, with a guy named Dave Scheich doing uh, interior design so I spent the year basically as well as doing school but also like helping design like restaurant interiors and stuff like that, which was actually really fun, but it was kind of wild and yeah. it was out there. Um, so we did like four or five different restaurants and, you know, I got the sense of that. We were working with Skull Candy a little bit. And so like, I, you know, I was, I was at least doing stuff, but I realized like this just isn't quite the right path. So I said, look, I'll just go to San Francisco, 
and I'll you know maybe join the startup company and see what that's all about. Okay, um, so skipping because I know we're relatively short on time. Skipping forward, join North Social. It goes really well. It ends up getting bought, but isn't like a life changer for you. So when people hear getting bought, they probably think you landed in the millions type of thing. Uh, wasn't exactly a life changer for you, but you like the whole business thing. Go to do the art MBA, and then you meet you like you kind of reconcile, I guess, with uh, George, a childhood friend, on your holidays, and come up with the kind of. I mean, it's funny because you the, the the core theme throughout is I like building stuff and I like people. Yeah. And so it's like. I want to build stuff and I want to be around people. And so with when I got to North Social, what I realized is like we're building stuff and it's very competitive and I'm around people and I really liked it. And the company sold, you know, 11 months after I joined it for around $30 million that I didn't really make out like a bandit, but the founders did pretty well. So I just, I like kind of love that. And I love that there's no hierarchy and I love that you could just like create like, you know, whatever it is that you think you thought or you wanted to bring into the world, you could do that. And I think at that point, uh, the engineering at that company was pretty terrible, but the marketing and sales were fairly good. And so I learned a lot of good lessons there. But the one thing is I realized like when I start a company, I want to make sure we have a really good product. Like we have a, a really solid background in product. And so when, you know, after that company was acquired, I had some money. And so I was like, well, I'll do this DMBA program, which is design and is like a design and business program put together. And I did one semester of that, which is, great and enlightening, but I realized that I could just learn way more just doing it myself firsthand. Right. So then George and I joined forces and um, and we kind of dove into starting Fivetran and, and that's where like I learned how to really code and like continued building stuff and building companies and, and whatever. Yeah. Like that was the, the, the theme that was just been like building and people throughout. Can we hear about, because people are going to take a lot from the fact that where you are now, it actually started off very confused and kind of playing around the art world rather than mm -hmm. always a business killer type of thing. People will get a lot from hearing how hard Fivetran was at the start as well and how unpromising it was. Because it's easy to say, oh yeah, it was always going to be a big, <laughs> it was always going to be a big hit. But there's two years there where you're living in San Fran and it's yeah. very unglamorous and unpromising and tough. Yeah, it was, it was a, I think the one thing, like George and I were just like, we want to start a company. And we, we, you know, we had an idea, but I didn't know anything about the idea. Like the numerics platform, the thing that George initially started this idea with, like I had no background, I had no idea. I just knew data was important. And I mostly just wanted to start a company with a super smart person that had like similar values. And so, you know, George and I joined forces and the, you know, the idea iterated a number of times over the first two years. And in the very beginning, we got once we got into Y Combinator, we were kind of like, oh, we're hot shots. Like, we're the big stuff. We're going to be like, you know, billionaires in like six months. And like, we get into YC and then we realize like, we are like the farthest thing away from that. Like, we're at the <laughs> very bottom. Everyone else in YC is like way ahead of us. All the other companies are growing way faster than they are. They actually have traction. We have, we, we don't only have, we have two guys. We don't have an idea even really. Yeah. So we kind of iterate and I think that really grounded us. But what we did have is we we're like, look, we're committed to doing this. And I think it, you know, George liked to talk about it as like, we just weren't ever going to fail. Like it was like failure is like the, the, the fear of failure was so strong. And I think for him, maybe that was part of it for But I also think it was more just that we were, we were like intent on like achieving. So we we're like, yeah. no matter what, we're going to build a company, damn it. And like, we're just going to keep iterating, 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 iterating until we get there at all costs. And, and that focus, that singularity, I think was so critical that every day we held each other accountable. We showed up at like, you know, 8.30 in the morning. We worked till like, you know, 8.30 or 9 at night. And, and just like, 
we know that at some point something is going to go our way. Yeah. And we just got to keep talking to users and just keep building more like useful stuff for what users are telling us they need. And I think early on, we probably should have talked to more users, like going back to the YC principles of like, talk to users, talk to users, talk to users, and then like don't overbuild, right? And that I think finally we got to this point where we built all this other stuff. And then when we had the side pipeline thing that just kind of was like a totally ancillary like feature that became, that people are like, that's the thing I really want. And it's like listening to them and not being stubborn and be like, cool, let's throw away all this code that we just wrote for the last two years, like screw that code. Let's just do the thing that the customers want the most and are willing to pay for and that provides the most value. Yeah. And then, you know, once we hit that, that's actually, I think, where things got the hardest for the next two years after. So it was basically, we got into YC, two years later, we launched this product. And so people listen to that, two years, it's a long time of showing up every day, eight to eight. Yeah. And trying to make it work. Like it basically wasn't working for two years. Or no. you, it was the process of building, yeah. Our investors, we had some seed investors. One of them called us the cockroach. It was just like, you guys just don't <laughs> die. die. <laughs> and so, so we were like, what do you mean? We're just, you know, we're chugging along. Because they're like, most people, they get, they're, they're just like, our time horizon for investing and starting a company is like, you know, half a year or something, yeah. right? And they're like, I can't believe you guys are still just like, like working on this damn thing, right? And it was like, what do you mean we're building a company, right? You, it doesn't happen overnight. You gotta like iterate a bunch and you gotta keep working. And and when the funny thing is like, once we got our first customer, that's where things got actually really hard because we had to path there. We're like, one, we can go try and raise money or two, we can just make a business out of this thing. And we decided let's make a business out of this thing, which means you have to grow on revenue. Growing on revenue itself is, uh, is very challenging because it's like, you know, George and Mel were there making sure the thing's working. I'm selling everything and doing all support and all marketing and everything. Mm. And it's like, you're this, you know, three man band and then you like add a few more people and the, the you know, the mouths to feed continued to grow. So you like, yeah. we essentially were paying a year up front, people were paying a year up front, we were taking that money and paying salaries. But if we didn't hit the next month, we couldn't pay the salaries. That's mad. We couldn't pay for the, the office that we rented. But that like, you know, 18 months of focus, it was like so critical that every day we came in and we actually hit. Whereas the first, the two months before that, it was like, there wasn't a pressure. I yeah, mean, sure. It was like, you had to, we, we were just getting stuff done, but like there was people like that needed yeah. this to actually work. And they're, you know, for both their salaries as well as for our customers. And that I think is where we built this, the background of like sell, like sell, 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 make sure we're like actually selling. And paying the bills. And paying the bills. Yeah, yeah. And that I think today is still one of the core like principles of our success. Mad. It really is. It's very hard to believe that it was so like, it just wasn't working for so long. <laughs> and the cockroach just kept going and then yeah. bang, you land where you are. With what? You know the figure probably, 280 employees or something like that. It's, it's growing too fast, yeah. I can't keep yeah, up. Yeah, I think it's around 280. 280 now. or something, yeah. And it was yeah. 70 when I joined in August uh, 2018. Yeah. So, and you know, <laughs> it's just the crazy. A year crazy. and a half, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, a lot. Yeah, it's mad. It's so wild. Uh, a lot of budding entrepreneurs out there or uh, what are they called, entrepreneurs, like people who want to get going, <laughs> What's your lesson to them? Particularly the ones, like for me, you know about my journey before Firetrap, you're kind of like chugging along for nine months with nothing happening. How, what keeps you going during that time where? I think the biggest <laughs> advice is like, set a goal of something. Like I'm gonna get, you know, basically the, when I, when George and I first started and we were working together, um, I had a blackboard in my room. And on the blackboard, I just wrote one customer. Right, okay. One paying customer. 
Yeah. And I just like every morning I saw that. In fact, when my now fiance saw it, she was like, what is this? I'm like, oh, that's my eat. Like, that's my thing. Like, we got to get one paying customer, right? That's mine. And then we got our one paying customer and I just put two more zeros behind it. Right. <laughs> and it was like, okay, a hundred paying customers, right? It was like this like laser focus. But I think to that point, even before the like one customer thing, it was like, we just knew we wanted to build a company and you just get so focused on it and then go a million miles an hour because you don't know what it is that you're going to want to do or you're going to end up with. But like, if you go a million miles an hour, you're going to learn a lot in that process. Yeah. And then you realize, okay, this isn't right. Let's change direction. Let's go a million miles an hour at the other, at something else and just keep going like that. I mean, mm. and I think if you look at most of my, my, you know, time in high school and college and everything else, there's always something I was going a million miles an hour at. Yeah. And you build this like muscle of like, go as fast as you can at things, learn on the fly, learn as much as you can, and then change directions when you need to. Mm. And so I think with us, when we first launched FiveTran, we went a million miles an hour at this numerics platform thing, realized within a month and a half, this isn't the right thing. We went a million miles an hour at like building spreadsheets, you know, realized that wasn't the right thing. A million miles an hour at building this like pivot table thing. Realize like, okay, that's okay, but now we also need this data warehouse, we also need this pipeline. So we like went a million miles out of that. Then we realized, okay, we gotta like, you know, switch out and just do the data pipeline. And I remember early on when Mel first joined our, our CTO, he'd come from academia where like you just never get rid of the work that you do. You just kind of like keep building on it, it becomes right. this like precious baby. And he came in and you know, the first month he worked really hard on something and George and I were like, okay, cool, let's change the directions, throw that away, we're going on something else. And he like almost lost it, right? We're like, no, 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 you can't get attached to that. Just like throw it away, just delete it. We don't need it, let's keep going. <laughs> and he literally was like, I can't believe, like this is crazy, you guys are nuts, right? But he's like, no, 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 we're, you know, you just have to go, keep going faster. It's not about like what you've done in the past. It's like what you've learned and what direction you're on is the, yeah. the most important thing. Very interesting. Yeah, don't remain attached. I think yeah. that, that's an easy one to fall into. Yeah. Um, and before we lose you, best advice you've ever gotten and best book for these guys to read or a couple of books. You're a huge reader. Uh, best advice. I guess I'll go back to my, my grandfather on this one, which is life is what you make it, which means, you know, if you want to do amazing things, like you have to go and do that. Yeah. You know, if you, if you, you know, anything that is that you want, you have, you have to go make it for yourself and you make your own luck to, to a lot, to a large degree. Um, best book, I would say the book that I most often push people towards is, uh, high output management for managers. I think one of the best books for startups or companies is from good to great. Oh yeah. It's a, a Jim Collins. There's uh, an enormous recency bias going on. Yeah, here. good to great. I, well, then, like, uh, Built to Last is his second book yeah, that yeah. I think is also super helpful. And it just talks about, like, how do you build a great company from the vision, the beginning? And it doesn't mean you have to have a great idea. In fact, it actually shows it's better if you don't have a good idea, but that you and, you know, your co-founder are aligned on what you want to do for values and overall company perspective. Yeah, okay. Well, I'll wrap up with, uh, I remember, I, I think the first time I met you, I asked you what you would have done had this failed. You said, I would have tried again, because you said you only get to go around once. Yeah. So leave on that note, you only get to go around once. Thank you very much, Taylor. Yeah, Brown. thanks so much, Mark. <laughs>